Welcome to the Rosenfeld Review Podcast, where we're just a bunch of blind men trying to find the elephant. Uh, I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host, and I'm here today with Christian Motzberg. Hello, Christian. How are you? Hello. I'm good. It's great to have you join us. Uh, Christian, you may uh, know a bit about, he has written a couple of very interesting books, uh, Sense Making, The Power of the Humanities in the Age of the Algorithm and the moment of clarity using the human sciences to solve your toughest business problems. Uh, Christian is the co-founder of Red Associates, and uh, he teaches uh, uh, at the New School for Social Research uh, in in the uh, practical application of the human sciences. And I wanted to ask you what that meant. That's a very interesting area to be teaching in. Can you uh, flesh that out for me? Um... Yes, I can try. Uh, if um, if you look at most uh, humanities degrees uh, in history or art history or philosophy um, or comparative literature, uh, they are very uh, specialized and very focused on the idea that all the students can get tenure in the academic world eventually. Uh, so if you're a historian, you're not very prepared to maybe take on other jobs than the ones that your professors have. And that's a shame because you might end up not doing the kinds of things you love. Uh, So they're in the big companies of the world or in the public sector. uh, There are many, 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 many philosophers that are not doing philosophy and uh, historians that are not doing history. And that's a shame because the the techniques uh, a historian or a philosopher uh, learn and know about are incredibly helpful uh, if they are directed um, at topics that uh, seem meaningful, sort of contemporarily meaningful in a company or so on. And the reason why I'm now trying to teach that and write about it in, as a professor at the new school is that uh, it is it is shown to be helpful for me uh, and for a firm I found. So Red Associates, that's a firm I founded a decade ago. Um, and it's just obviously a um, reasonable thing to do, but not something that there's a job market for. And uh, I think sort of that's what the next 20 years of my life will be about is to try to create a job market. Um, but a lot of the reason why it's not helpful is that the humanities have become so insular and so focused on details about details. And if you want to be a PhD in, you know, philosophy, you have to treat a small puzzle in the, you know, in in the, in the world of philosophy and write papers to five other people rather than being engaged in, in, in the practical realities of, of companies or public sector institutions. Uh, So it's, it's that, that's the idea. And, and it, I think it's supremely helpful. But well, under- you're making you're making me feel better as a uh, a refugee uh, from a PhD program, uh, ABD, uh, and uh, you know one of the things that I really found frustrating about my academic experience was the I think you used the term insularity. I mean, we talk a lot about silos in industry, and I can't think of a more siloed environment than a university, and um, I found it quite frustrating. Uh, and actually, when I left and made my way into what's become uh, the user experience world, quite liberating to be able to 
pull and pick and choose the interesting challenges, but also the interesting techniques and, and methods uh, that uh, came from different practices and put them together to do some synthesis and to, to come up with some really interesting challenges and work in my career. And I know that's true for a lot of people in our industry. Um, it sounds like you went through that uh, as one of the founders of Epic. Did you feel that there was a point at which the maybe the, the standard practice of, uh, let's say, anthropology just wasn't working for you and you needed to kind of push it in a into a new place with broader problems to solve? Um, I'm very fond of anthropology. Um, and I think it's a technique that is helpful. Um, I'm not an anthropologist. I studied philosophy. Uh, so I don't have a, I'm not a tribal member. Um, but it's ethnography in particular is, a, and some of the theories of coming out of anthropology is, uh, or are generally uh, unique in terms of understanding some things. And that's why I like it, and I still like it, and I'm you know, a huge fan of that world, but um, it's not the only thing. I mean, if you, if you wanna make a new car or a piece of software or overhaul healthcare in North America, uh, just having, just yeah, please. But if you if you're trying to do that, which they were five six years ago, um, then just having ethnographic information would be um, incredibly reckless, right? So, anthropology is a is a way of of getting to causation, but not large scale correlation. And uh, you need statistics, and you need you know th those kinds of things. You need randomized trials to really be sure that you know, a vehicle or a fleet or a portfolio of products are uh, the ones you ought to make um, before. So, so I think it's uh, anthropology is a, is a helpful tool, but standing alone, it is uh, too risky to, to base decisions on alone. Um, so I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I'm a huge fan and I enjoy it and it's a major part of my life, but I'm not naive in terms of the limits of it. So um, speaking of limits, I, I think one of the, the, the challenges that we're facing right now, especially for researchers, uh, as we become uh, seen as more valuable and even, dare I say, strategic in large organizations, we, you know, we're, we're trying to you know, increase our profile. We're trying to become part of conversations that uh, are, are happening at the sea level when we can. It's not just having a seat at the table, it's knowing what to do with it. But um, I wonder in your work, if you're seeing a certain naivete among researchers about the impact of, of artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, are we prepared? Do we understand what the impact of, of you know, those technologies and those techniques are going to be as we do research more strategically? Um, I think there are two naive positions that come even before the data science problem uh, or data science opportunity right now. And the first one is understanding business, understanding that research is a component and uh, not understanding the kinds of 
kinds of uh, trade-offs and decisions that are made from a business perspective, pure business perspective, is uh, hugely important to understand if you want to be an effective researcher. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people in the research world underestimate that. And it's a, for me, the analogy would be moving to France and not learning French. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just uh, uh, prohibitive in terms of your influence. So that's one side. The other side is the word user research. Uh, user research is, comes out of um, human computer interaction or human factor research. And that is about machine man interfaces and understanding how people use things. And that is a practical input into research, into, into a, a product development and into how to shape and humanize things. But at a, at a company level, at a corporate level and a strategy level, that's not how you should look at people. You should look at people as people and you should look at them way beyond how they sort of practically interact with things. And I think it's a problem that the research world, particularly the anthropology-based or ethnography-based research world has been married to design, to product mm-hmm. design. Uh, I think that's one component, but cost reduction, marketing, uh, uh, portfolio management, corporate strategy are all beyond user research. So I, I, I would say the user research world is limiting itself to uh, practical interactions between product and people rather than the whole scope of of business. So that's sort of the basic problem. Then the AI or machine learning situation is beyond that, right? So it is clear that we now have bigger data sets than we've had before. And there are all kinds of limits to them. The data is dirty, it's biased, uh, it's collected only on our digital lives, all kinds of problems, but it's there. And it's possible now to make multi-factor analysis with bigger computational power. And we now have a diet of data that we can feed algorithms um, that we didn't have before. So not taking that into account is ridiculous. Um, That is, however, it has big problems to it. Uh, I saw this piece of research the other day where uh, a uh, trying to predict social behavior in terms of hiring people and how well they will do in a job it was done in two ways. One way was AI-based, or so-called AI-based, which was more than 1,500 variables uh, in order to predict whether a person would be helpful, not helpful, and stay and be productive and grow in the company. And then hand uh, done, uh, uh, hand calculated uh, predictions based on four to five variables. Um, and it turned out that they were as uh, they were as predictive, uh, the two approaches. And both of them very close to the prediction of flipping a coin. So, so uh, you know, the jury is still out whether, and I, I, whether AI-based or machine learning-based, large data set-based, I can now uh, do uh, f- uh, facial recognition. It can do uh, uh, natural language processing in a way that's amazing. But can it predict social behavior? I think that's still a discussion. And if it ever is to do that, it is uh, in a combination with deeply qualitative uh, research. So, you know, obviously people who come from 
the research side of the UX world who may be, you know, uh, folks with backgrounds in HCI who are, you know, grappling with data science and increasingly quant uh, uh, perspectives in their organizations have a long way to go. Uh, we, we have to learn not only the language, but the tools. Uh, and yet, I wonder if you're seeing the reverse happening. Are the people coming from quant perspectives starting to value uh, the more qualitative and even somewhat intuitive approaches that, uh, that the types of researchers that uh, you might see in the UX world bring to the table? Yes, I think absolutely. You know, Facebook hired uh, more than 800 um, social science-based, UX-based researchers in the last two years uh, because it, uh, they were limited by one type of analysis. Uh, Google is doing the same. Mm -hmm. uh, places like Waymo that built incredible technology uh, for uh, cars that can automate parts of driving are running into problems with um, human nonlinear behavior. Uh, so across the board, there's a, there are experiments with um, social science qualitative components built in to quantitative statistics-based uh, models. And I think that wasn't the case three years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a big reckoning uh, with, uh, with uh, data lake build out and uh, big data uh, investments that happened five, six years ago, where it just turned out it was a little bit harder um, than it was supposed to be. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. So how, how do you see the successful organizations that are making uh, the investments in both uh, data science and social science uh, uh, influenced research 
how are they putting them together? I mean, it's just so common to see organizations talk the talk and even make the investment. But when it comes to walking the walk, I mean, it's difficult to put these people together. You've already pointed out that, for example, they may not speak the same language. Uh, they um, have different tool sets, different biases. How do you construct an organization that's really centered on insight and not on just acquiring or producing different data sets from different smart people who never talk to each other? There's not a lot of people that have fixed this, if any. Um, there's a lot of tribal behavior going on. Yeah. And I, I'd say it's worse on the social science side than it, or a softer side. Uh, soft, I don't like that word, but the qualitative side than it is on the quantitative side. I think, I think people like me, uh, who's got a human humanities background, are much more hostile, hostile to people from a statistics or computer science background than the other way around. And that's, so that's a self-inflicted um, problem Why that do you we think that have. Is? Because of education, because we're educated to not liking other, other ways of, of doing things and criticizing the world rather than experimenting. And um, I think there's a big, big problem in the humanities departments that are frankly ruining people's life. Um, hmm. And uh, I don't know if I would, I would ask, I would be comfortable with my children uh, studying humanities right now, uh, even though I absolutely adore all the topics. I, I think, you know, I think if you're not careful, you can end up being um, being uh, without a job for life, uh, or in constant tribal warfare with people that you sh really should try to experiment things. Try to experiment with. But what is it about the statisticians, let's say, that that um, that helps them not, uh, you know, fall prone to this type of chauvinism? I mean, they they come out of academic environments too. Is is it just that they're more driven to, toward experimentation? Yeah, and they are scientists. They have the mind of a scientist, which is uh, you have hypotheses, but you are you are open to being wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the first. And the second one is they're practical. They try to, you know, uh, they're not ideological. Where what has happened to our universities, uh, particularly on the east and west coast of America, not so much in the heartland, uh, the, the, the attitude is one of ideology and critique rather than one of experimentation and practical solutions. And there's a big role for critique in this world, and certainly the world needs mm -hmm. to be have heavy critique involved. Um, uh, politically, you know, critique of capitalism, you know, so on, social justice, uh, uh, environmental problems. But but the attitude of already knowing what the outcome is, and uh, and already knowing that the world is unfair and that if everything is biased against different groups, is not the mind of a scientist. That's scientists are trying to understand rather than having the conclusions already and and it's a uh, it's it's prohibitive uh, so that's I think I quite enjoy the company of so of of people with a statistics or a computer science background because they just want to understand and uh, and then after you've understood you can be heavy on critique right because you know things rather than starting out with a critique uh, and that's the fault of universities and it's getting worse 
So let's take this back up to the C-suite for a moment. Do you feel that uh, the people leading organizations are more comfortable with that scientific uh, thinking? Does the language resonate more with them? Or are they um, more likely to respond to uh, the language of critique? At the first. I mean, they, they, they don't mind critique and, and they don't mind. And the best ones have a Karl Popper kind of attitude, mm -hmm. which is being open to uh, being wrong and being more interested in, in whether you're wrong than proving that you're right. And, um, and I think that's a very, very healthy attitude for any researcher. Uh, and I'm, you know, if anything, I'm pro Popper. Um, uh, so, so that's the comfort level. The other one is that the best managers I've met just want to have insight. They don't want prepackaged opinion and preconceived notions. They would like to just learn. And, um, and then on the basis of that, de-risk decisions um, or uh, innovate um, based on insight. Uh, and I think that can come, those kinds of things come through a disinterested uh, uh, view at the world where you're trying to learn rather than trying to prove a point. You can prove points afterwards and you can be heavy, heavy on critique, but please start with an open mind. So let's take, uh, let's stay just a little longer in the C-suite. Uh, you know, the, the big challenge that those people face, especially in large publicly traded companies, is the, the factor of time and the pressure to perform in the short term at the expense of the long term. How do people with those different research backgrounds that we've talked about, social science and, and, uh, and statistical, how, how do we help those uh, senior leaders uh, ground their decisions in long-term thinking? Is it even oh, possible? <laughs> of course it is. I mean, they are, I mean, my, quite often the top managers and the biggest companies have PhDs themselves, right? So they're sophisticated people that read every day and, and are, you know, generally open to learn um, and often smarter than you are yourself, right? When you go in there and often have a whole other contextual understanding of things that you might not have. At least that's certainly my case. I think if you if you go into a C-suite with the mindset of a of user experience as interaction between products and people and sort of highly practical approaches, they would have very little time mm -hmm. for you. Uh, if you inform corporate strategy or if you are part of um, seeing if particular bets and pick particular decisions are uh, reasonable or um, um, possible or financially attractive or technically possible, uh, then there's a lot of year for you and a lot of uh, really flexibility and open attitude to use research. Um, and uh, there's no decisions I've ever seen that wasn't somehow based on research. Uh, but uh, because we, from a human science background, are often very hard to use we might not always be the kind of research that's influencing decisions. And uh, that's too bad for everybody. 
I always like to, uh, I guess, oversimplify this conversation in that, um, you know, I think that people make decisions based on evidence, but also on stories. And I think too often uh, in these conversations that we have in our industry, we, we think of quant people as the, the curators of evidence and the qual people as the, the storytellers. Uh, one thing I'm hopeful about is that we can get away from that dichotomy and understand that we, we both do both and we do both better when we do it together. And um, I wonder if you see um, much in the role of story, uh, story playing a strong role in the C-suite uh, or, or if so, are the kinds of stories that are successful today a bit more robust uh, than they used to be and, and how? Uh, I mean, I don't buy that, of course, like you say, I don't buy the dichotomy of stories versus evidence. Uh, I, th I mean, there's a very famous essay by William James, the great psychologist, uh, that's called Radical Empiricism. And the idea is that, you know, when economists say that they are empiricists in the sense that they are dealing with evidence and so on, the psychologists are the sort of the if you say American pragmatism in general, but so the attitude of, of, a, of an anthropologist or a, or a good psychologist is that we haven't made up our minds about how human behavior works uh, before we start. And economists have, mm -hmm. they already know how that it's about incentives and markets tend to equilibrium and needs are transient and, you know, those kinds of things where we are sort of looking at it uh, and trying to learn and then form an opinion and a set of assumptions so, so actually, you know, when I'm challenged by economists or people with that kind of background and saying we're empiricists and you're a sort of story guy, I say, no, actually, I'm the empiricist here. I'm one step closer to reality than you are. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't buy the dichotomy of, of, of those two. Yet, I mean, it's clear that you know, anything is driven by story. So markets are driven by stories of bull markets and bear markets and risk and, you know, Political China. markets. And, Exactly, of course, and and it's just ridiculous to to say that anyone isn't driven by stories. Um, so so it's a it's just about being honest about uh, how those stories come about and and seeing if those stories are really mapping onto reality. Uh, and uh, and any executive I've met, not any, but most executives, by far most executives I've met, are interested in stories and um, trying to explain things to themselves through understanding trend lines and stories and, and so on. Uh, so, but informed by evidence, of course. So th th this idea that some are soft and some are hard, I mean, I, I see myself as incredibly hard of, of, uh, kind of a, a scientist or somebody with that set of, set of values. Um, uh, even though some of the data I use are coming from observation of humans mm -hmm. that are interpretive and uh, hermeneutic. Um, uh, so it's a ridiculous dichotomy. Uh, yet it's alive and certainly, you know, a story, I suppose. I, I think, um, you know, uh, the, the best uh, storytellers among the economists are the behavioral economists. And it's precisely because they, they, they've reacted maybe to uh, some of the you know, overly, uh, 
I don't know, do I even want to go there, overly logical, uh, hyper-logical view of how people behave that uh, has been taken in traditional economics. That staring you in the face is completely ridiculous. Yeah. Christian. And untrue. This is, uh, I have a feeling as soon as um, I go to bed tonight, I'm going to have some really deep dreams about human psyche and and how we make decisions. And uh, also... Uh, I, I think I'm going to be thinking a lot about what you might speak about at our conference, Advancing Research, which is coming up in New York City, March 30th and 31st, 2020. Uh, so happy to have you as part of the program. Um, there, uh, We don't know yet what you'll cover, but I, I'm, I have no fear that there's a lot of interesting stuff you will cover. And uh, this has just been a great taste of, of your thinking. Uh, I want to just mention before we uh, sign off that I'm talking with Christian Motzberg, uh, co-founder of Red Associates and uh, author of many books, including two in English, uh, The um, Moment of Clarity and um, The um, uh, Sense-Making, Power of Humanities in the Age of the Algorithm. Uh, I know that you're working on a new book, How to Pay Attention. Do you want to give us a little uh, preview of what you might cover there? Yeah, I mean, the, the two books you mentioned are about Martin Heidegger, and um, I try to hide it uh, as, be- as best as I can, uh, but they're really about being in time and the description of worlds and moods and so on. Where the new book is about Merleau-Ponty, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, um, so a French uh, philosopher who took up uh, some of the challenges of Heidegger, which is about perception. So how we understand the world, how we see the world, how color and shape and numbers and light uh, but also human interaction and uh, how we see and how we see ourselves see. Um, so the book is called How to Pay Attention. Um, and it's about, well, it's really about how, uh, how looking and listening to others work and try to describe how to do it better and how to learn how to be good at it, really. Uh, something uh, that will be very useful for uh, not just the, the various researchers in the, the industry, but uh, everyone. So I wish you luck with that. That's uh, what my publisher hopes. Yes, as a publisher, uh, I, I, feel, I feel them, and I, <laughs> I hope for the same for them. Um, before we, we uh, wrap, um, uh, I always like to ask our guests if there's a, uh, anyone who's doing work that you believe deserves some more attention, or maybe a, a book or article that really stood out for you recently? Um, two things. The first one is the book I mentioned, Radical Empiricism by uh, William James. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you haven't read it, you should. Okay. Um, and the second thing is the work of Jonathan Haidt, uh, who is a professor at NYU. Is that a H-E-I-D-T? A H-A-I-D-T. H-A-I-D-T. Okay. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's a professor of psychology, but he wrote a book called The Righteous Mind a couple of years ago. But his new work is on the impact of social media on mood disorders and our mood, um, and that there unfortunately are correlations between the use of social media and suicide thoughts and and, um, hospitalization of our, particularly our girls, particularly Mm -hmm. our daughters. And, um, And that's something that the research community uh, needs to take on immediately uh, because it's a it's a it's a it's a national emergency, probably a global emergency that we 
all need to deal with. So for anybody interested in human behavior and interested in technology, um, that's probably the topic. Christian, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if you want to learn more about Christian Matzberg, uh, his website is madsbjerg.com. Thanks again, Christian. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.